Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live and for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, Stuck in the Middle with You, we've got exclusive polling, which shows one in five people who vote Labour, who say they're going to vote Labour at the next election, would prefer a coalition with the Lib Dems. How do the Lib Dems play it? We're talking equidistance going all the way back to 1992 in Paddy Ashdown's approach to doubling the number of Lib Dem MPs back in 97. We'll be joined by Ed Davey and uh, former advisors to Paddy Ashdown to pick over their strategy. All that's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's Tuesday, so it's time for this. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Do you know what this is? Yeah, of course. So that's isn't that Tommy Lee Jones speaking of the Democratic <laughs> It's Wallace and Gromit, obviously. Wallace and Gromit. Which, uh, which Margaret Thatcher cabinet minister's son composed <laughs> that music? I give up. To be absolutely clear, Henry I don't mean Danny... by that I give up on the question. I just give up altogether. <laughs> Henry and Danny don't ever know what the music's going to be in every week. But I do have the trivia question. Henry brings in the trivia question regardless. The Sorry, answer so... is. Which which Margaret Sorry, Thatcher? Sorry, a former cabinet minister who served under Margaret Thatcher yeah. had a son has a had a son who composed the composed the Wallace and Gromit theme, theme. I think I sh- I'm pretty sure this is true. I mean, I, I've got I, uh, the answer is John Knott. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So that must be <laughs> Sasha Swire's brother. Brother, I believe so. Yeah, right. I'm now going to quickly Google to make sure, <laughs> and I'll tell you at the end of the segment if it's not true. <laughs> there we are. It, Julian Knotts, apparently, that's correct. Well done, Henry. Ten points. Well done. It's a gift that keeps on giving this feature. Uh, right, very good. Uh, let's talk about um, what on earth is going on in the uh, Conservative Party. The the fact that they, they haven't even lost the election yet, but they're already running the, the leadership contest to see who's going to be leader of the opposition, essentially. We've heard, we heard from Kevin Badenot last week, Swellen Barman yesterday. Uh, uh, Swellen Barman speaking at this extraordinary conference. I mean, uh, uh, out of a lot of uh, competition... I think this is by far my favourite speech at the uh, this uh, National Conservatism Conference yesterday. Uh, this is Chris DeMurth speaking. I'm an old Anglophile American conservative with s- several spicy Margaret Thatcher stories in my dinner party repertoire. Lady Thatcher and I have been communing about national conservatism, this new movement, and I'm happy to report that she is totally on board. So there we are. Margaret Thatcher endorses them from beyond the grave, uh, Danny. Um, 
Is the Tory party losing the plot before it's even well, got it's, to the election? It's very interesting because, you know, Chris DeMuth, um, when I first met him years ago, was perfectly sort of sane um, member of mainstream conservative thinking. And it's interesting how, um, how sort of aggressive and eccentric the, a conference appeared when some of these ideas have, you know, at one point were kind of quite mainstream conservative dialogue but you would have thought that the conservative body having gone through one round of trying to persuade the country to base its government on you know kind of marriage and child rearing and social conservatism would have would have appreciated that that doesn't work politically that people don't want it i mean this is this is after all is the pitch of ian duncan smith that's where he was politically and and, and i speak as someone who you know I, I think there's a strong um, sociological argument for um, pro-marriage policies, but at the same time, I think people don't have um, much political support for them. Indeed, what, on one occasion, the Conservative Party, as you may remember, used to have this policy of tax uh, breaks for marriage. Mm. And I said, look, there's no point giving a tax break once someone's got married, since the actual trying to encourage is getting married, right? So you should put all the money into persuading people to get married. If you did that, you'd increase the number of people who got married. And after that, the whole thesis is it's the marriage that does the work, not the continued tax break. So this was tested. Uh, and the moment people were actually asked about this and realised it was a pro-marriage policy as opposed to a tax break that just gave them some married people some money, they were completely opposed to it. It just politically, it doesn't work. And I speak as somebody who, you know, who has some sympathy with the general idea that if we had you know, more stable marriages in the country would be better for us in a, in a social way. I'm not sure what the policies are that would encourage that. And I'm absolutely certain that politically it just doesn't work. And it's just interesting to see another a conference that just hadn't learnt that political lesson. And most people would have watched it thinking that people who are on this stage are against me, they're against my way of life, uh, they're against what I plan for my future, they're against the direction the country's going. And that is, however well-intentioned any of these people are, complete dead end. But Margaret Thatcher backs it. He's <laughs> communed with her. She's right behind it. Well, it, it, uh, the thing about Margaret Thatcher, I mean, the interesting thing about Charles Moore's books on Margaret Thatcher is how shrewdly political she was. I, I actually think he, it's probably not a bad estimation of Margaret Thatcher's politics that she would have supported it, however much we may be, you know, but also there's the, rise out of the idea there's of a, There's a difference between Margaret Thatcher 1979 and Margaret Thatcher 2009. Um, yeah, but I, you know, but while, while I'm saying that, it's not about, she was, she was very... Um, she paid a great deal of care to the politics of the things that she proposed. I mean, that's one of the reasons she fell out with Nigel Lawson was over, you know, control of interest rates and her kind of instinct that people wouldn't want it to go up and that sort of thing. She 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 wasn't an ideologue at all. Yeah. Henry, what do you, what have you made of this this conference and the the fact that you've had sort of Barman there, Jacob Rees-Mogg there, this whole wing of the Tory party, which is sort of seems to be trying to get ahead of itself. Well, that's what I think is is perhaps the most interesting thing is that you have a large number of conservatives um, there who are small C conservatives there who are not necessarily big C conservatives who might come from America, who might uh, be part of British political traditions or movements that are not within the Conservative Party. But the people who we are most interested in 
um, are all very much within the Conservative Party. I mean, Suella Braverman is is literally the Home Secretary um, of Rishi Sunak, a Prime Minister who, you know, I think most of his supporters would think it stands in a different tradition to this. Um, you know, Danny Kruger, the backbench MP, uh, who gave the sort of one of the pro-family speeches, was a speechwriter to David Cameron. Uh, I mean, of course, Suella Bravman was, was selected under David Cameron. Michael Gove is speaking today, was, of course, a big part of the Cameronite tendency. So I do think, you know, if if there is an idea taking root that this conference speaks to something sort of out with where the Conservative Party has been in, in the last sort of couple of decades, I actually think, you know, this is this has been a strain of the Conservative Party in the last few decades. And in, in that respect, it reminds me a little bit um, of what happened in the Corbyn years in the Labour Party, specifically in the sense that, you know, these were people who, uh, in Jeremy Corbyn's case, of course, had never gone near government, but was, of course, you know, a backbench Labour MP throughout the, the new Labour years. But also a lot of the people who ended up serving him, you know, had been much more mainstream members um, of, of governments or front benches during the new Labour years. Um, so I think it's that sort of funny thing that starts to happen when parties inch towards opposition, and that is an underlying trend. Of okay, so, so one thing that I think we do have to warn against, some of the things that this conference supports, in, including strong immigration policies, are very widespread public opinion. They're just not very widespread public opinion among Westminster journalists. Uh, that is a true... That is, that, yeah, yeah. Although, although it sounds like a populist trope, that is actually just true. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that um, one of the things this... Conf- you know, alongside what I think was a completely mistaken tone and shackling itself to this position on marriage and the family, which the Conservative Party's been around before and doesn't work, that there is also an attempt to find a sort of social basis for what has previously been a purely economic doctrine. So it's not... I, I don't wholly dismiss this exercise. Right? It, it, this is not for me, and I thought that the tone of it, uh, it has turned into, and look at the discussion we're having, it has turned into nothing more than a discussion about how the Conservative Party has become angrier, more dissenting, more right-wing, uh, a little bit threatening. That's just how it's come across mm. without any question. But that the Conservative Party should have a conversation about um, how it can sustain the social fabric of the country, that, um, rather than being a sort of purely libertarian economic party. That is a correct discussion to have. So, you know, in some ways, this is a sort of missed opportunity, I think, to have a to have an interesting discussion lost in um lost in in, in the debate that they had. So can, I, I do is, is this the right time to have that conversation, given that Rishi Sunak's best hope of remaining Prime Minister is to keep the show no. on the road, not go off and have some I, 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 naval gazing exercise. You know very, you know, that is not my view, of course. Mm. So my view is that the moment is not the moment for yet another conference about directional change and all that sort of stuff. And that is, that you know, that is better uh, to be had in opposition. And, then, and, and the discussion we're having, you know, definitely shows that it's sort of misfired in certain ways. But it's also important... To, to understand that while there are sections of the public who have no interest whatsoever in a discussion about, you know, immigration control mm. and think everything that, you know, on immigration control is threatening, that is not a general public view. People are concerned about very large rates of immigration yeah. and that and it's, it's reasonable for people to have a proper discussion about how to achieve that. Yeah. I mean, I do think the fact that this conference is having that discussion about the Conservative Party's direction speaks to a fatalism about the Conservatives' electoral prospects 
uh, which I think actually it's worth saying has really deepened in the last few weeks since the local elections. You had a period after Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister where even those people on the right of the party, I'm sure, you know, Suella Braverman and her allies would be among those, started to become quite optimistic. They started to think, well, you know, the path is narrow, but we're in that narrow path. You know, the polls are narrowing. Uh, and I think the local election results did shock a lot of those people um, out of that view. And they are now, you know, starting to think past the next election. I think that's a very concerning thing for Rishi Sunak, not just because it means that those people are looking at the polls and drawing uh, a logical conclusion, but also because, you know, every ounce of energy invested by senior conservatives in uh, preparing the ground for a leadership election post the general election is energy that is not invested in trying to find a way for Rishi Sunak to win that general election. Let's turn our attention to the Labour Party. I was really struck at uh, Patrick Maguire's column in The Times yesterday. So lifting the lid, Henry, on... I didn't really know anything about this. Keir Starmer's uneasy relationship with lots of Labour's local council leaders. In particular, he doesn't seem to get on with Andy Burnham. No, Keir Starmer is um, reliably bland when you ask him for his reflections on any Labour colleague. You know, he'll say they're wonderful, as is best practice for a leader, I guess. Um, except for Andy Burnham, who he loves mocking in public. I remember some... Christmas drinks he put on for journalists. Uh, this Christmas just gone, so it was just after the World Cup final. And Keir Starmer said something like, "You know, such a shame that Andy Burnham uh, couldn't be here, but he's had a you know he's had a great week. His boyhood team, Argentina, won the World Cup, but of course it was also disappointing for him because his boyhood team, France, lost the final to Argentina. <laughs> um, it was basically a joke about the fact that Andy Burnham had you know come into politics as a Blairite and then was a Brownite and then was a Corbynite, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But speaks to." Um, yeah, a, a fairly uneasy relationship with the mayor of Greater Manchester. I mean, the point that Patrick got across so well in, in that column, which um, I'd urge listeners to read, is that there is this tension here between the fact that Keir Starmer um, wants a fairly radical programme of devolution, which perhaps we need to talk about more. He gave this speech at the start of the year mm. about how he wanted to introduce um, what he slightly... Uh, amusingly called a take-back control bill, but actually had nothing to do with Brexit. It was about entrenching devolution and going much further and get, in a way that's quite akin to what Michael Gove has wanted to do, but the Conservative government hasn't quite got there. But he doesn't seem to like many of the people who are tasked with delivering it. And that speaks to questions about uh, William Hague wrote about a few weeks ago about, you know, the quality of our politicians and whether, you know, whether we actually have the quality of local leaders to do what Keir Starmer wants them to do. Yeah, but there's always a tension between the... There's going to be a tension between what are almost sort of licensed mavericks in cities and the leadership of the party, which existed not just because of the personality, but also because of the situations of Boris Johnson and David Cameron. You know, you, you, you are, as the mayor of a city, you're independent, you, re you represent the whole city, uh, you're always up against other cities, um, you've got your own different perspective, you're bound to kind of, there's a bit of a tension between them that's baked into it. It is interesting. And I mean, I, I, you know, Keir Starmer won't forget that Andy Burnham was in a pretty open way hoping that he would uh, fall, um, Keir Starmer would oh, fall. Oh, yeah, the because, COVID cagoule <laughs> in the height um, of the lockdown. You know, so, and I'm sure that, um, I'm sure that Keir Starmer won't have forgotten or, you know, or forgiven that particularly. And what about... Um, do you think it also speaks, Henry, to, to maybe Keir Starmer's lack of political 
experience and now if you had been kicking around politics for a long time you'd know that being the leader of the party does not mean that you're in charge of all that you survey and actually rubbing along with colleagues uh in different parts of the country and in different parts of the organization is part of politics well i think i think what keir starmer's um or what keir starmer's relative lack of history in in politics um you know, it, or the way in which that's most often reflected, actually, is 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 a centralising tendency in his team. That's what a lot of people in the Labour Party complain about: is that um, he, and in particular Morgan McSweeney, his campaign director, and a few others, sort of hold a vice-like grip over over the Labour Party in the country. Um, but you know, whether that's a bad thing, I think, or a good thing, is I think yeah. a, a much more open question. I mean, you look at you know what Labour Party activists did over recent years, and you can quite well see why Keir Starmer would like to. Uh, you know, manage their behaviour for, for, from from the centre. I mean, look, Danny's completely right that a lot of the particular Starmer-Burnham dynamic is about leadership. I mean, two years ago, if we'd had this conversation when Keir Starmer was widely expected, including among his own team, to go down to a creditable defeat in the general election to Boris Johnson, you know, the assumption was that the next Labour leadership election would be between Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham, both of whom would seek a seat in the 2024 general election. Neither of them are going to do so because... They basically think Keir Starmer is quite likely to be prime minister. And at that point, the dynamic just shifts, right? Because yeah. it's not a relationship between the national office of the Labour Party and a branch office of the Labour Party. It's a relationship between Downing Street and mayors, and that, that's different. Um, let's talk about the other idea which has been floating around from the Labour Party. Giving under-16s under the vote and EU nationals. Uh, Keir Starmer was speaking under about... Under-18s. Under-18s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, 16 and 17-year-olds, but not the under-16s. Well, don't know, we don't know. That's a third-term priority. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's take a listen. This is uh, Keir Starmer uh, defending the idea. Let's just take someone who's been here for 30 years, has literally put down their roots here, as I say, married to a Brit, their kids are here. They, this is their country, this is where they live, this is where they contribute. I think it's very hard to say, well, you should really be voting back in your country of origin where you haven't been living for 30 years. That actually just doesn't, doesn't pass the common sense test for me. Does it, this idea pass the... That was uh, Keir Starmer on LBC. Does this idea pass the common sense test for you, Danny? Well, I am in favour of votes of 16. Are you? Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, uh, yes, I am. Because I think, I think the argument for it is pretty strong. It's not It's not overwhelming. It's not uh, irresistible, but I think it's strong. Um, and uh, But I don't think I favour Keir Starmer's new proposal. I think, it, I think voting is something that should be for... Uh, citizens. I understand why he's promoting it. I think he um, there's, first of all, there's the ca the public policy case, which I, you know, completely understand what he's talking about, the settled ca case, but the, the, the political reason for it, he can gain a very large chunk of voters and no one's going to stop him. I mean, really people don't get themselves engaged in this and if anyone thinks this is going to be a big electoral issue, I doubt that it will be. So, so part of me um, thinks, Henry, why bother floating it? It, it seems like a it's not going to win him any votes. It seems a bit uncharacteristically uh, out there for, for Keir Starmer. It was a piece of good journalism by, the, by, by a rival newspaper, is, is the mm. truth. I don't think he wanted to float it at this point, yeah. as it were. And it was, it was that rare thing in the current Labour Party, which was a pledge from Keir Starmer's leadership campaign that was disinterred, and it turns out he still actually does believe in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's kind of why it's being talked about now. Um, I, I mean, look, I think Danny's right that it's not going to be at the heart of the election campaign. But, I mean, votes at 16 in particular could end up being quite transformative should it be enacted. I mean, look, the the crude truth, and Jacob Rees-Mogg actually spoke about this mm. yesterday. Um, you know, he said, and I paraphrase, 
the Labour Party shouldn't be allowed to give the votes to EU citizens because that would be gerrymandering. And we tried gerrymandering with uh, voter ID and it didn't work because actually it just repelled some of our voters. Um, So, look, I I think that is the base truth. When you talk to Labour people about votes at 16, they talk about how it would bolster the number of people who reliably vote Labour. Yeah, well, hilariously, um, I thought Jacob Rees-Mogg was wrong even about this. I didn't didn't really think... I mean, I don't think it was gerrymandering. There was a a perfectly good public policy uh, case for it. And I think the truth is it's neither been as damaging as people thought it was nor as necessary as his proponents thought it was. So it was an argument I could never be quite bothered to engage in as a result. But this proposal is a much bigger one, right? Yeah, yeah. The EU citizens, that is a much bigger one um, and the, the votes is 16. So they're, they're, they're major changes to the franchise. Um, and I, and I, I'm probably more inclined to the one that um, to, to the votes is 16 one than, well, I am definitely more inclined to the 16 one. Danny Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman there. And if you want to read more about the stories we've been discussing, including more on that polling, just hit the links in the podcast description and subscribe to The Times at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Stuck in the Middle with you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. What's the point of the Lib Dems? This question has been asked inside the party right now as well as outside it. Is it to sit in the middle of politics and promise to work with whoever offers you a taste of power? Or is it to pick a side? To be unashamedly pro-Labour? Well, that's a tactic which might just work. Exclusive YouGov polling for this show reveals that one in five Labour voters would prefer a coalition with the Lib Dems than Keir Starmer winning outright with a majority. I mean, extraordinarily, 37% of Lib Dem voters would prefer a Lib Lab coalition, more than the 32% of Lib Dem voters who favour a Lib Dem majority government, however unlikely that might be. So, look, there's been lots of talk about, is this next election going to be like 1992 or 1997 for Labour? But what does all this mean for the Lib Dems? After the Tories won in 1992, Paddy Ashdown abandoned the idea of equidistance, the idea of claiming he could work with either main party, to instead campaign hard to get the Tories out. And it worked. He doubled the number of Lib Dem MPs in 1997. So, can Ed Davey repeat the trick? The current Lib Dem leader will join me shortly. However, the question of what the third party might do in a hung parliament has long been a problem. Way back during the Liberal-SDP alliance years and the 1987 election campaign, David Steele and David Owen, the two joint leaders, couldn't even agree on what to do about the two bigger parties. David Owen had been keen to work with Thatcher. Steele wanted to work with the Labour government. Paddy Ashdown then became leader of the new Liberal Democrat party, uh, born out of their merger, having promised to replace Labour as a party of the left. That didn't really work either, in large part because Labour bounced back under Neil Kinnock. So Paddy Ashton adopted a policy of a plague on both their houses, declaring both Labour and the Conservatives to be as bad as each other. 
This position of equidistance lasted through the 1992 general election campaign but caused major headaches when Lib Dems were pressed on whether they would really prop up John Major if he lost his majority after 13 years of Tory rule. So, Paddy Ashdown resolved in the immediate aftermath of the 92 election to change all that, to make explicitly clear that the Lib Dems favoured working with Labour to remove the Tories. In the days after the 1992 disappointment, he made the Chard speech, a speech at the Chard Guild Hall in his Somerset constituency, beginning that process of abandoning the idea of equidistance. Here he is again, a few months later, at the Lib Dem Party conference. That is the challenge for Labour. Having shown that they cannot beat the Conservatives, will they continue as the roadblock which guards the Tories from defeat? Or are they ready to play their part in the new politics of Britain? Equidistance was all anyone was talking about back then. Uh, this is Paddy Ashton at his party conference speech in Glasgow in September 1995. It's about pretending that the debate around equidistance was so well understood that he could open his speech with a gag about it. At our spring conference earlier this year, some of you who were there may remember that I quoted from a Labour local government document from Southampton. Today, in the interests of even-handedness, <laughs> but not equidistance. I'm going to tell you about a Conservative. We will be called upon to show that we have the courage and the firm answers and the strong vision to be the lever of change, the guarantee of change in our country once again. Let them then say of us, that was their challenge and they rose to it. That was Paddy Ashton as he attempted to abandon equidistance and throw his lot in with Labour. By contrast, Nick Clegg readopted equidistance in the run-up to the 2010 election, which meant he could say this after the result, a hung parliament, was announced. As I've said before, it seems to me in a situation like this, it's vital that all political parties, all political leaders, act in the national interest and not out of narrow party political advantage. I've also said that... Whichever party gets the most votes and the most seats, if not an absolute majority, has the first right to seek to govern, either on its own or by reaching out to other parties. And I stick to that view. It seems this morning that it's the Conservative Party that has more votes and more seats, though not an absolute majority. And that is why I think it is now for the Conservative Party to prove that it is capable of seeking to govern in the national interest. So, are we now back at another charred speech moment? Let's go right the way back to 1992. Why was it such a significant moment for British politics? Alan Lehman wrote the charred speech, abandoning equidistance for Paddy Ashton. I asked him why the speech was necessary after John Major's Tories had won again. Yeah, I think an interesting combination following the 92 election of, yes, disappointment, the party had a bruising few months, but had come through it. But also a feeling of frustration that the Tories have got re-elected yet again under John Major. But also opportunity, I think. How the votes had fallen meant that the Lib Dems could possibly play a big part in the next parliament. Uh, don't forget, I mean, the, the disappointment for the Labour Party was much greater than anything we could have possibly felt. Uh, Neil Kinnock resigned straight away. 
they were thrown into a, an internal conversation about who should be their next leader. And so there was an opportunity there for Paddy, who was a man of extraordinary determination and energy. You know, he wasn't deflected at all by the fact that he'd just been through the most grueling experience you can imagine. Um, an opportunity for him to get out there and frame the issues for the next parliament from a Lib Dem point of view. And the Lib Dems have gone into the 1992 election with this this policy of equidistance, uh, not wanting to pick a side, happy to work with both sides, or they're both as bad as one another, uh, whichever way you frame the answer. What was it that Paddy Ashton then wanted to do in the days after the 92 election and with the charred speech which you wrote? Well, yeah, it was it was a notional equidistance, I would say, in 1992. It was more theoretical than actual. And, of course, what had happened in the last week of the campaign is that the prospect of a Labour-led government with some arrangement with the Lib Dems had, had really come into focus. And the Tories had used that rigorously and very effectively to squeeze the Lib Dem vote. And the Lib Dems had really felt the pressure those last few days and seen votes disappear out of the ballot box back to the Tories. Uh, if you like, there was a big tactical vote for the Tories in order to prevent a Labour government under Neil Kinnock. So two things I think Paddy concluded. One was that's not a good way to have a final week play out for you. And the second was if if we're going to get into the next election in a better shape, two things needed to happen. One was there needed to be a better Labour Party than the one that was around in 92. And the second was we needed to prepare the ground much more effectively for possible collaboration and cooperation post in the next election. And that was really what the charred speech was intended to start the process of doing, so that by the time of the next election, there would be both support for a reforming new government after the Tories lost office, we hoped, but also an understanding of the sorts of things that would have to happen in order to make that work. In the speech, he talked about how Labour could no longer win on their own and uh, therefore the parties of the left had to work together to, to prevent an almost permanent one-party Conservative government. Obviously, what happened in 1997, the Labour Party did win on their own. So do you think do you, did the Chard speech work on, on his terms? I think, uh, yes. I mean, at the time, that felt like the conventional wisdom, Yeah, I, I have to say, in '92, There was an almost universal feeling that Whatever happened in British politics, the Tories would always win. It was a bit like you know, Lineker's thing about England playing Germany. We run around, we get exhausted, and at the end, Germany always win. Uh, and it was that was the feeling in the in the aftermath of '92 that ev- almost everything had been thrown at the Conservatives. The economic position was dire; they were split. They had a weak Prime Minister, but they still won. So a, a feeling that it was really tough, and that the Labour Party wouldn't be able to, on its own, win again. Now, of course, that didn't turn out to be right. One of the factors behind the fact that it didn't turn out to be right might well be uh, the fact that um, Paddy did a lot of work between 92 and 97 on his own and then subsequently with uh, Tony Blair to build the case for a centre-left reforming government. And actually, hidden underneath the extraordinary gains that the Labour Party made, the Lib Dems more than doubled their seats. Yeah, 97 was a historic triumph in many ways for the Lib Dems. Yes, it didn't get the party near to government, although there was some cabinet committees that both parties sat on and, and, and there was quite a lot of cooperation after 97. But it really put the party on, on the pitch where serious players in British politics play, up to nearly 50 members of parliament. And a lot flowed from that. I mean, uh, 
PR for the European elections meant a lot of Liberal Democrats going to Strasbourg. There was a Scottish Parliament, which uh, within a few months of the election meant a Labour Lib Dem uh, government in Scotland, and so on and so forth. So a lot of benefits flowed from it. And it, it gave the party a, a, an infrastructure and a strength that's really lasted through till 2015. Finally then, do you think Ed Dave is the heir to Paddy Ashdown in that regard? Is he going to repeat at the next election uh, what, what Paddy did in 97? Well, no parallels are ever exact, are they? But but history has echoes. And, I, and I, I've always felt myself that Britain from time to time gets reforming left of centre, centre-left governments, which are created when the non-Tory forces are aligned, not necessarily in packs or deals, but because there's a sentiment in the country supported by both the Liberal and the Labour traditions. And that looks like it was going to happen this time. Otherwise, we get long periods of Conservative government foisted upon us. You know, how you manage that, how you uh, make it work is is always different. And Ed will no doubt be calculating exactly all the tactics and the strategy of doing that. But the, the thing the Tories have to fear... Yeah, they benefit when the opposition parties are seen to be split and far apart, when the opposition parties are fighting effectively on their own turf, but also seem to be part of a wider movement of reform and change, then the Tories have a lot to fear. There's Alan Lehman, former director of strategy for the Lib Dems and speechwriter for Paddy Ashton. But is he right? Well, in a moment, we'll hear from the current Lib Dem leader, uh, Sir Ed Davey. But first, I'm joined by Miranda Green from the Financial Times. who used to be a press secretary to Paddy Ashton. Hi, Miranda. Hello, Matt. Nice to join you. How much are you enjoying hearing the word equidistance used a lot? Yeah, it's like old times. (laughs) It's like old times. I mean, I think your framing is absolutely bang on, isn't it? You know, is this more like 1992 or 1997? And anyone on the non-conservative side of politics is hoping to edge towards that 97 end of the spectrum of possibilities. And I think you're therefore right to say it's a moment of kind of opportunity for Ed Davey as to whether he can pull off a similar trick that Paddy did in the 97 election and make sure that there's a you know double the amount of Lib Dem MPs after polling day. And also, you know, as Alan said just there, in 1992, they got into a real mess because all of the conversations in the run up to polling centred around this question of hung parliaments. Who would you do a deal with? What are your terms of the deal? And that actually alienated the exact voters they were trying to get on side, soft soft Tories. And so that's a mistake they're determined not to make again. Whether you'll see the sort of explicit, transparent cooperation that we saw between Blair and Ashdown in the run-up to 97, we're yet to find out. But there's an opportunity there for quite considerable advantage to be taken i think i mean you probably like me will have poured over with great interest the work done by rob ford of manchester on what tactical voting could actually deliver yeah at, at an election next year and you know he's worked out that on a 10 percent swing away from the tories you might get labor on like 307 lib dems on 23 seats he says if you add in a sort of very detailed tactical voting model that he's invented you get labor up to 332 and the Lib Dems on 38, which is a comfortable combined majority. So it's really all to play for. Of course, what his model doesn't do, (laughs) or what his model assumes rather, is that the electorate in, in those seats understands 
how tactical voting works absolutely perfectly and is happy to cooperate uh, in, in the sort of central message of unseat your local Tory. Yeah, you, need to, you, need, you need to know who's in second place in order to work out who you're, you're, who you're voting for tactically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in 97, of course, there was that crucial intervention by the Daily Mirror where they literally said, you know, our, to our label readers, if you live in one of these 20-odd seats, I think it was a list of 20, actually, yeah. if you vote Lib Dem today, you're effectively voting for a Labour government and to have to a local Tory. So you need that level of transparency for it to work perfectly. But the prize is quite large for both parties. I suppose the, the, there's, still a, there's a tightrope to walk here, isn't there? Because if you look like you've thrown your lot in completely with Labour and there's no difference, then it becomes a point, what's the point of voting? What is the point of you? Why doesn't everyone just vote Labour? Yeah, well, there are two... Uh, I mean, it is a, that is that is a, a potent criticism, and I, I think Danny Finkelstein actually wrote a column to that effect last week, did he not? Yeah. Um, saying, you know, you've messed up already because you've lost your sort of bargaining chips by 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 making it explicit that equidistant isn't a factor this time. I mean, I'm not sure about that. I mean, far be it for me to criticise the great Danny <laughs> like, uh, You know, we are not worthy, etc. But I actually think Ed, for Ed Davey to say, I am not equidistant between the Conservative Party after 13 years and Keir Starmer, with whom I clearly have a lot of policy ground in common, is a statement of the bleeding obvious. And I think it's kind of... You know, I think you'd be expecting the voters to believe too much to pretend equidistance at the moment, which, again, has a lot in common with the 97 oh, well. scenario. There, there are dangers in it, though, very, very mm. definite dangers in it, not least this idea of electoral pacts, which are incredibly unpopular with the public for good reason, because, you know, it looks like a fix and it's not proper it's democracy. Like, yeah, so I think it's extremely unlikely that you'll see pacts. And of course, that was tried in 2019 because of the sort of attempt to harness the anti-Brexit vote, which turned out disastrously for <laughs> Joe Swinson. So lessons, lessons learned on that, I think. Well, you've probably given me my first question for Ed David and I'll speak to him in just a minute. Really good to speak to you, Miranda. That's Miranda Green, Deputy Opinion Editor and columnist at the Financial Times, uh, former press secretary to Paddy Ashton. Right, we'll speak to the Lib Dems' approach to the next election with their leader, Ed David. Good morning, Matt. So, clowns to the left of you, jokes to the right. Is that how you feel in politics? Well, it reminds me of uh, the sort of thing that Paddy used to say all the time. Uh, I worked with Paddy for quite a long time. I was his economic advisor in the run-up to 92, and then one of his candidates in the 97 campaign. And, uh, yeah, he, he had a great turn of phrase. Uh, he was such a, such a thoughtful man, um, principled man, and uh, I'll be really clear, he was my political hero. Um, I sometimes describe myself as an Ashdown liberal, which I think is the sort of liberal who is slightly anti-establishment, wants reform, uh, and wants to make the country a fairer, more caring, greener place. So uh, what did he used to say then about being uh, stuck, in the, stuck in the middle between the clowns and the jokers? <laughs> he used to be really clear we needed um, our Liberal Democrat policies that really sang to the voters' concerns. And so, you know, in the run-up to uh, 9-7 election, for example, we were doing a lot of work thinking about what was the biggest issue facing many of the voters. And back then, I mean, sorry to go down the history track, but uh, education was really under the cosh. 
I mean, it still is now, yeah. right? But but then we had massive class sizes. Uh, we had people who didn't have enough books. There was no nursery education. It was really in a in a really parlous state. And we we basically broke the the, the zeitgeist because the zeitgeist back then was you couldn't put up taxes. And yeah. we developed the policy of a penny on income yeah. tax for education. We'd done that actually before the 92 election, only just before. It had quite it worked well, but we really decided this was the right thing to go on uh, in the 92 election, the 97 election. Lots of other things, of yeah, course. Yeah. But, but having uh, a single message really helps if you're the it, third party. It, well, it really did. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, we didn't just have a single message, yeah, by the yeah, way. But, we had quite a few. Yeah, but, yeah. but there's no doubt that that really caught the mood. Yeah. And um, uh, Paddy delivered it brilliantly. And uh, it spoke to who we were. Yeah. We believed in giving uh, every child, every young person, the greatest opportunity in life and doing that through education yeah. skills. But the, the key, the key exam question then of this uh, this conversation is: Are you now equidistant between the Conservatives and Labour? Well, in many ways, I'm surprised you asked that question, Matt, because <laughs> when I became leader of the Liberal Democrats, I said my task was to get rid of Conservative MPs mm. and to get this Conservative government uh, out of office. Um, I couldn't have been clearer on that. I've repeated it on a number so, of occasions. So you're an heir to Paddy Ashton as uh, well as a mentee uh, of him. Yeah, I mean, uh, Paddy went through a journey. I mean, if you go back, and I think that's why the child speech is so important. Yeah. I'm glad you're writing it in your book. It is come. a chapter yeah, in, in your book. book. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, the child speech, I remember it uh, well. Uh, it was a big moment because in the 92 election, he had been equidistant. And indeed, uh, in the early part of his leadership, he'd want to destroy the Labour Party. If you go back yeah. to his early speeches in 88, 89, 90, he was really want, believed that the only way to defeat the Conservatives was to get rid of the Labour Party and overtake them. And that proved, I think, partly because of first past the post, lots of other reasons, more challenging yeah. than he'd, he'd originally thought. Um, so he went into the 92 election equidistant. Um, and uh, I think that didn't speak to the country. Yeah. And... I think it was clear and the reason he made the charge speech was, you know, I think as Alan Lehman was saying earlier, the Tories had really ruined the country in the run-up to 92, public services, the economy, divided party, etc., yeah. etc. Et Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, he thought what needed to happen for liberalism was a defeat of the Conservatives. They were the enemy of the values that we stood for, and therefore he moved his position. Now, I'm not moving my position because I started off as leader, yeah. as, a, as a leader saying, my job is to get rid of Conservative MPs. But how can you cast yourself as the anti-Tory leader when you are literally a knight of the realm? You are Sir Ed Davey because you served in coalition with them. Well, um, uh, as I've said on a number of occasions, I fought them every day of the week. Um, I fought George Osborne over things like renewables. He didn't really want renewables. He wanted gas. Uh, I strongly believe in climate change. I need to show that you get the cost of renewables down, which we did. Liberal Democrats did that. So I fought uh, him on that. I fought Eric Pickles on various things. I could go into lots of detail if you like, like but um, uh, I'm really proud of what Liberal Democrats did because we fought the Conservatives. We stopped them doing lots of stuff. Just look what happened uh, after the 2015 election. Disaster. So, looking in the opposite direction now then, the Labour Party, is there a single Labour policy that you disagree with? Well, do you know what? I don't spend my time looking at Labour policy. I spend my time, a bit like Paddy did, uh, developing Liberal Democrat policies. I mean, uh, it's probably not very well known, <laughs> and, and no criticism of anybody, but the leader of the Liberal Democrats is the chair of the Liberal Democrat 
Federal Policy Committee. And we develop uh, our manifesto. We're very much doing you do, that. You do know and about Labour policies. You've got, you know about government policies. You've criticised government policies all the time. Is there anything that you don't agree with Keir Starmer on? Well, we're developing our policies, I've just said, and the, one of the biggest issues for us is the NHS and care. Yeah. Um, and so on the NHS, we're really clear that you've got to get many more GPs. So we've set out... The Labour Party said that. Yeah, I'm not sure they set out in the sort of detail that we've got. I don't know their policy, to but be But you're honest. not going to fall out with Labour Party over wanting more GPs, are you? I, I don't know what their position okay. is. I, my, my job as Lib Dem lead, I'm sorry to yeah. be so prosaic, Matt, is to develop a Liberal Democrat policy. So let me give but you one where I think only, we're leading... You're, where, the, the, complete... you're not going to get to implement those in a Lib Dem majority. Even in our, in our poll, 37% uh, uh, of Lib Dem voters... Uh, favour a Lib Lab coalition. That's more than the 32% of Lib Dem voters who favour a Lib Dem majority government. You're not going to be Prime Minister, are you? Well, the, the Liberal Democrat leader wants more Liberal Democrat MPs. Yeah, Shock, horror. And he wants to develop Liberal Democrat policies. And yeah. I can show you a whole set of policies yeah. where we're different from the Labour Party. You know what's really funny in doing my... Well, which one then? Show, well, me, a, show uh, me a policy which is different to the Labour Party. Well, for example, my policy on carers. Yeah. Um, I, I've been speaking a lot about carers, both paid carers and family carers, people looking after loved ones. It's something that I feel passionately about. I also think it's important to have a fairer society, to deal with gender equality, to have social justice, because carers often are less well off. I also think it's fundamental to sorting out the health service. Mm. So we have gone out there and said that there should be a special higher minimum wage for carers. So take the national minimum wage, £10.42 an hour, at £2 an hour extra for carers, because there's, I think, 165,000 vacancies. Yeah. Uh, and unless we fill those vacancies, um, and that means recruiting a lot more carers, we won't sort out the health service. The health service and so, the so, economy, getting so, people so, back to work. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I haven't heard anyone say, say that. I'll tell you what I have yeah. noticed uh, in terms of labour policy. They keep nicking hours. So you're in uh, agreement. So you could no, work. No, 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 no. Because so no, no. we, have, we have I don't know. If they want to keep, if, if the Tories or Labour want to keep uh, copying Liberal Democrat policies, that's fine by me. What it shows is we are leading the debate. Let's, let's, because you're a straight talking man who likes to answer a straight question. Um, uh, yes or no, uh, would you repeat Joe Swinson's claim that she was going to be Prime Minister? Are you going to be Prime Minister? Listen, um, I, I thought Joe was um, slightly over the top there. I'll be uh, <laughs> uh, uh, frank with you. Uh, uh, and uh, what, what I am going to do, and I'm being straight talking, yeah. I'm saying, you know, there's no way we are going to have any truck with the Conservatives. I think the country wants them out, my party wants them out, I want them out, and we're going to focus laser beam. So that's a straight answer. That. Would you do a coalition deal with Keir Starmer? Uh, listen, my, I'm going to keep coming back to this. When I knock on doors... Yeah. No, 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 when I talk to people... No, no, but, I'm not about, about the doors. But they don't talk about that, uh, Matt. No, no, but I'm talking people. about that. So just answer yeah. my question. But, would but, you do a coalition deal with Keir but, Starmer? But, but, Matt, love you that I do. You know, you, you're very you've much... Said no, you, you've just on, answered. You've said you, no you, to you, a coalition deal with the Tories. Why won't much, you say yes to one with Labour? Because this is very much a Westminster bubble question. And when you That's go, fine. When you, when, when you, well, when you, when you and I are both in the Westminster bubble, so let's just answer it. Would you do a coalition but, deal but, with Keir Starmer? But my, my job is to take... To answer with the question. Is, my, my job is to make sure that voters understand who but the you, Liberal Democrats are. Because, see, but you've said because, no to a deal because, with the Tories. Why won't you just say, yes, with under the right conditions, I would do a coalition deal with Labour? Well, you, you started this programme uh, all about equidistance yes. and Paddy Ashdown. Which you've abandoned equidistance. You've now yeah. in, thrown yeah. your lot in with Labour. Sure. But, would but, you but do I, a coalition deal I, with I, the Labour Party? I, I, I take a lot of my um, instruction from Paddy. Right. Uh, I've told you he's my political hero. Yeah. Um, and I remember working with him very closely up to the 1997 election. And what he didn't do, and uh, I agree with that, he didn't focus on 
after the election. Yeah. He focused on the Liberal Democrat message before the election because he didn't take voters for granted. And he, he focused on lots of things. I talked about the penny on income tax for education because that is what voters need to know. What are you going to do for their children, their young people? And that is what I'm going to do, yeah. Matt. I'm not going to be disruptive for it, distracted from it yeah. by any question from the Westminster bubble. I am going to talk to voters. I'm going to respond to their questions and their concerns. That is what a proper leader of a political party should do. Uh, final question. Uh, this, is, this is what people really want to know. Who comes up with your blue wall stunts, whether it's knocking them down with <laughs> orange hammers or tractors? We have a fantastic team. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a few, actually. Uh, but That's all they work on, it's just your blue wall stunts. <laughs> no, no. Well, uh, <laughs> dedicated I, I, elite I, I, squad of <laughs> stunt merchants. Well, I, I just think they're very creative. Uh, <laughs> and, and also, you know, isn't it, isn't it good to have a bit of humour in politics? Yeah. Uh, and I think if you can make a serious message, uh, and the message is only the Liberal Democrats can beat the Conservatives in large parts of England. They will only get rid of the Conservatives if Liberal Democrats are successful and beat lots of Conservative MPs. We've made that message, whether it was me with an orange mallet yeah. or driving a tractor. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I like the way that this amazing team we've got, and it is a fantastic team. Uh, and and I, I mentioned someone from uh, Paddy's era, Ollie Grender. She's yes. director of yeah. our comms, and she's using that, that experience <laughs> and creativity well, so uh, last, to, to week, make the message. Last week, week before you had the big clock, time's up for the for Rishi yeah. Sunak. Is it time for Keir Starmer? <laughs> Good try. No, uh, uh, well, well, my view, as I said in that speech in yeah. front of that clock, yeah. is it is time up for, uh, for, for Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives. The people don't want them. Yeah. They showed in the local elections in huge numbers so, so time's up that, for they, Rishi that Sunak. They, they were prepared to vote for the Liberal Democrats yeah. because they wanted to get the Conservatives out. And, Just and wrapping, here's a key we need thing, to wrap things up they for really the liked our policy agenda, <laughs> whether it's on the health service, on sewage, where we've led the, the debate, uh, whether it's on the cost of living. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm going to stick to those core We need to release you from the... From the so, so time's up for Rishi Sunak. You're not going to be Prime Minister, so who is? Well, Matt, Matt you, you, you've got this summary, <laughs> which is always very interesting. Um, well, it's I, what you've I, said. Uh, I, I'm going to release you. I should release you from the Westminster bubble. So you can go back to the knock on some doors. Okay, thank you. Come up with your next stuff. Lovely to come out. Next time, any ideas? You, we're always, always listening to you. I, I will come up with some. Ed, David, <laughs> thank thanks you. so much for joining us. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Do let me know what you think. Email me, matt, at times.radio, or post a review wherever you're listening. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. 